Lord, we thank you that you do bring rest to the weary and strength to the weak. Because we know that we all face that at times. We all have those times in our lives where it feels like we are going through the valley of the shadow of death. But Lord, in those times, we thank you that we don't have to fear evil, for you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. You're right here with us, Lord, through whatever valleys we are going through. Lord, we know that it's not easy in this world. And even when we want to stand up for you, that's not easy either because a lot of people want to push back when we stand up for Christ. But Lord, I pray now as we open scripture together that you will give us clarity on how we can stand strong for you in the midst of a world that is not always friendly towards you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Pray that you will be working in our lives now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I want to read a passage out of John chapter 15. It comes from Jesus, and he's speaking to his disciples just hours before he is going to be arrested to be let off to be crucified. Listen to what he says to his disciples. He said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you, you do not belong to the world, for, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I have spoken to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, these are very joyous words to begin with this morning, talking about, okay, they persecuted Jesus, so if we want to stand up for Jesus, odds are decent that we're going to get persecuted at times as well. A little bit later in this passage, uh, Jesus, in the same conversation, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And we think, Jesus, why does it have to be that way? Why can't things in this world be easier, especially when we want to follow you? Because, I mean, you're the Lord of everything. You created it all. You sustained it all. Why can't you make things so that it's a little bit easier to follow you in this world? Well, I think we all know from experience, if we do want to stand up for Christ, if we do want to seek to help build his kingdom, there will be times where people stand against us, where people are opposed to us, where we do face challenges. And at the very least, we can take comfort from the fact that Jesus was not caught off guard by the struggles we face. In fact, he predicted them. I mean, he, he knows what we are going through when we're facing challenges. And that can be a great source of comfort. But it's still really kind of strange when you look at the world around us and see the things that they accept and compare those with the things that they push back on or reject at times. Because if you have someone who comes and says, okay, I am a Hindu or I'm a Buddhist or I'm Wiccan, a lot of people will say, you know what, I don't know much about those things. But that's kind of cool because we value religious diversity around here. Or if you have someone who says, you know what, I'm a hardcore atheist or I'm an agnostic. I really don't know what I believe, but I don't really want to commit myself to anything yet. A lot of people say, well, you know, that's cool. I actually respect you because you're honest and because you feel the freedom to believe what you want to believe rather than simply going along with status quo. If you have someone who says, okay, I'm going to come out of the closet and I'm going to declare that I'm gay or I'm lesbian or I'm bisexual, you have a lot of people in our society who will pat them on the back and say, you know what, I'm really proud of you because you had such courage to stand up for yourself. I, I want to support your right to, to be whoever you want to be and express yourself however you want to express yourself. And it's interesting that we look at our society who says, you know what, all these things are just fine. Do what you want to do. Be who you want to be. Yet if we want to stand up for Christ, we want to express ourselves as someone who's devoted, devoted to following Jesus, 
How many times do we get a lot of pushback? We get people who kind of look at us strangely um, as if we're from another planet or at least a little outdated from another time. Um, people might talk badly about us behind our backs, talking about, oh, they're a little goody two-shoes, um, wanting to follow Christ and stuff. Um, there are oftentimes where people, they're, they're looking at what we do or say, and if they interpret anything that we do or say as, as being some way that we're trying to live out our faith in, in the public sphere, oftentimes people will kind of bristle. They'll get upset at that. They say, you need to keep your faith private. And so it's interesting that we live in this world where so much is accepted and diversity is, is really um, celebrated. But still, when we want to live faithfully for Christ and to make him known, point people to the salvation that comes only through him, many times people want to push back. Now, as I said, this is not surprising to Jesus, and it shouldn't be surprising to us either. And today we're going to see how can we stand strong for Christ in the midst of a world that is not always a fan of Jesus or of his followers. So I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6. We're going through a series right now on the book of Nehemiah. This comes out of a context that may not be familiar for us if you haven't been here over the course of this series. So I want to give you a little bit of background to understand where we've been and where we're going. Nehemiah was a man who lived in the Persian Empire about 2,500 years ago. The events we're looking at actually took place in 445 B.C. And Nehemiah, at that time, he was a cupbearer for the king of the Persian Empire. A cupbearer is a very important role. Um, he also had a Jewish background. And he got word that Jerusalem was still in ruins after it had been destroyed some 140 years earlier. And God was really burdening Nehemiah's heart to do something about this. God was actually calling Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, leave the luxury of the king's palace in order to go help organize a rebuilding effort for the city, and specifically for the city walls, which were vital for the protection and the well-being of the city. So Nehemiah left. He went back to Jerusalem 900 miles in order to help organize this rebuilding effort. And it's really quite inspiring to see uh, all the teamwork that goes into rebuilding the city. But there was opposition along the way as well. There was opposition from the outside in terms of other political leaders in the surrounding areas who didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. The opposition was quite strong at times. And there were problems internally among the Jer Jerusalem people as well in terms of corruption. Because those who were the upper class in Jerusalem were oppressing those of the lower class out of greed. The upper class wanted to make more money. And so they, they really pressed down the lower class and, and took advantage of them. So Nehemiah had to address a lot of sticky situations as he's leading the rebuilding of the city. And today we're going to see that the, the pressure from the outsiders, from these other political leaders, is becoming more and more intense. You could actually call it Operation Intimidation that was really focusing in on Nehemiah himself. And today we're going to look at three phases of this Operation Intimidation that were coming against Nehemiah. And we're going to see from this how we too can stand firm in the midst of intimidation and pushback. I want to start out reading Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which is this first phase of intimidation. Nehemiah writes that when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not yet set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. 
So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent the same message to me. And each time I gave them the same answer. So phase one of this operation intimidation is really this, a bit of a veiled plot against Nehemiah. Uh, what we see here is that the rebuilding of the wall was nearly complete. The wall itself was actually done. The, the gaps had been filled in. Uh, the wall was rebuilt. All that was left was to put the doors back in place on each of the gates around the city. Now, this was still a pretty significant task because the wall was tall and these doors were large. But still, the task was nearly done. But even though the wall was nearly rebuilt around Jerusalem, Nehemiah's opponents had not given up. They simply refocused themselves because previously they'd just been making some general threats against the people who were building the wall. They threatened a little violence against Jerusalem as a whole. But the wall was still being rebuilt. But now the threats are becoming more personal and focused on, on Nehemiah himself. And, and they target Nehemiah um, by sending him a letter. And, and I think it's important to recognize why are they targeting Nehemiah? Well, I think part of their mentality is this saying that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Do you know that, that spiritual leaders, people who really want to lead in building up the kingdom of God, really do have a target on their back? We see in Scripture that we have enemies. If you're trying to work for the kingdom of God, you have enemies who are working against you. One of the enemies is, is on the spiritual level. Uh, we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the, of the devil and the spiritual forces of darkness, the best bang for the buck, if you really want to start to wreak havoc on the kingdom of God, is to begin to take out the leaders in the kingdom of God. Because if you take out leaders, odds are good there are going to be others who are going to fall as well along the way. And so Nehemiah had a big target on his back, just as leaders in the kingdom of God do today as well. And I believe that it really was these spiritual forces of darkness working through men like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem in order to try to bring Nehemiah down. And they, they tried to do that by sending this letter to him. It sounds like a very innocent letter saying, you know what, why don't you come down and meet us together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono? This plain of Ono was to the north of Jerusalem. It was on the border of Judah, which is the region where Jerusalem was. So it's on the border of, of Judah and Samaria. Samaria is where Sanballat and Tobiah and some of these enemies are. So, so these men wanted uh, Nehemiah to go visit with them in this out-of-the-way village. Like I said, it sounds like a very innocent type of, of invitation, but it's anything but innocent here. Think about it. If they really wanted to make peace with Nehemiah, they easily could have come humbly to Jerusalem and just said, okay, Nehemiah, we want to, can we have a few minutes of your time? We know you're busy. Can we talk now? Instead, they invited him to this place that's out of the way, out in the middle of nowhere, very near to their homeland, right on the border, and with very sinister um, motivations there. Nehemiah said they were scheming to harm me. Odds are good what they were doing, why they wanted to lure him away from the safety of the city and out into the middle of nowhere, out closer to their land, is because they were probably either going to set up an ambush to attack him along the way, or there may be some sort of accident 
along the way that would happen to Nehemiah that would end his life. I think Operation Intimidation here was actually Operation Assassination. They were trying to take Nehemiah out in order to, to really weaken the people of Jerusalem and the efforts taking place there. So we see this letter, and I think this is really a test of Nehemiah's focus and his humility. We see throughout Scripture that, that pride become, comes before a fall. And I think Nehemiah had many opportunities here to be proud because he's undertaken a great work in rebuilding Jerusalem. It's nearly done. I think it would have been tempting if you're in his position to think, you know what, I've done really well. I deserve a break. I should go there and receive congratulations from them and, and offer terms of peace and stuff like that. And it was really a time where he could have compromised and let down his guard. But he didn't. He stayed focused on his goal. And he told them, look, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should I leave this place? I'm still working. I'm, I'm focused on this task at hand. I really admire Nehemiah's response here. He didn't escalate the situation. He didn't throw fuel on the fire of their hatred towards him. He simply was matter of fact and said, you know what? God has called me to a purpose here. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to complete this task. And so, so he, he turns down their invitation. He has to over and over because it says four times they sent the same invitation to him. They were insistent. They wanted to do something that would bring him down. But he stayed the course. So that's phase one, this veiled plot. But then as we move on to phase two, we see that they're getting a little bit more aggressive. Look with me beginning in verse five. Nehemiah writes, Then the fifth time that they sent a letter... Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, meaning the, the Persian king, the king of the whole empire. And so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So we see here that, that phase one was this veiled plot. Phase two of this Operation Intimidation comes through lies and rumors. And I think we all know from personal experience that when you get into this context of lies and rumors and gossip, things can get really nasty and really painful. I mean, there's an old saying that, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I don't know, do any of you actually believe that? No. I mean, it's a lie. I mean, yes, sticks and stones can break your bones and be very painful physically. But words can be incredibly painful. I would say that if we went around this room, probably all of us could share about words that were said to us that should not have been said, that, that carry some deep pain, that cause some scar inside of us that still is there if we, if we really examine ourselves a little bit. And, and it's particularly powerful when it's not just one individual spreading lies or rumors or gossip about us or saying mean things to us, but when instead of just one, it's actually an entire group of people who's doing this. And those times, it actually feels like the whole world is against us. And that's what Nehemiah's enemies were trying to do to him. 
They were trying to spread lies and rumors about him through a letter, which I call an unsealed, juicy letter. And that juicy, you don't see that word juicy here in Scripture. But I'm just trying to help us understand what's really going on here. If you think of, of things that are juicy um, in this context, I think of, of the magazines that are on the checkout lines in grocery stores. I mean, the magazines, they're trying to, to dig up a lot of dirt and gossip on Hollywood stars. I mean, you see the headlines. They're trying to entice you to buy the magazine. Um, headlines like, can you believe it? Um, we saw so-and-so on a beach together with each other. Uh, or um, this other person over here is cheating on their girlfriend or their spouse or something. Or, hey, so-and-so gained 20 pounds. Or, um, I mean, you see any, any number of things. Hey, so-and-so is pregnant, and we have no idea who the father is. I mean, it's all this dirt and ugly stuff that is projected out here and is put there because it grabs our attention. I mean, I think humans have this, we have a sinful nature inside of us, but partly what that sinful nature does is make us kind of gravitate towards junk on other people. And we feel this sick um, kind of uh, excitement at times when you see people struggling or seeing them falter as if when someone else struggles, then that makes us feel better. I don't know why we do that, but that's just a part of our human nature. Uh, we like conspiracy theories. We like it when there's um, something out there that's a little bit controversial. And that's really what type of letter this was, that, that, that Nehemiah's enemies sent an unsealed, juicy, controversial letter that was meant to stir up lies and rumors to put pressure on Nehemiah. Let's look at what's in this letter. Uh, it starts out saying, it is reported among the nations. That's kind of a, um, a juicy way to begin a letter. Because basically what it's saying is, hey, there are a lot of people out there talking about this, so you need to pay attention as well. Let me, let me give you a hint. If you ever want to start a mean rumor about someone, here are a couple of keys that can help you get it spreading very quickly. One thing is find a topic that is going to really grab people's attention. And then make sure that when you are beginning to spread this rumor about this topic, that you make it clear that, that there are a lot of other people who believe this as well about that thing. There are a lot of people who are saying this. It doesn't matter if it's true, but if you attach that phrase to it, that a lot of people are saying this, or a lot of people believe this, you give an instant air of credibility to your rumor. Now, the issue there is that if there aren't a lot of people behind it, your rumor is just full of hot air. But people will still believe it. Because they think, well, a lot of people believe this. I, must, I, I need to listen to that as well. That's why if you hear a rumor going around about a lot of people are saying this or believing this or doing this, I think it's important to always ask, okay, who is actually doing this or saying this or believing this? If you ask that of someone and they can only produce one or two names that maybe themselves and like a close friend or a family member are saying this or believing this, I think it's caused to question the merit and the validity of that rumor. But when you are able to get people to believe, you know, a lot of people believe that, then the rumor is really going to gain steam. And that's what we see the people trying to do with this letter. They say it's reported among the nations. I mean, they don't list a lot of names. They do list one. Geshem says it's true. But that proves absolutely nothing because Geshem is just as much an enemy of Nehemiah as the people sending the letter. And so that doesn't prove anything, but they, they're fabricating these lies and these rumors about how Jerusalem is rebuilding the walls in order to rebel against the Persian Empire. 
And also that Nehemiah himself is going to be the king of this city. And these are all fabricated rumors, but it's something juicy that's going to grab people's attention and it's going to spread like wildfire and it's going to make it very uncomfortable for Nehemiah to try to get him to cave in to this pressure that his opponents are putting on him. And we see that, that really what the enemies are trying to do is engage in a propaganda war because it's an unsealed letter. And it says that Sanballat sent his aide with, with this message, come meet with us, but had this unsealed letter in hand. And what an unsealed letter allows people to do is anyone who wants to can read the letter. And so you can be sure that this messenger, who is an ally with Sanballat and, and these opponents of Nehemiah, you can be sure that as he was carrying this letter to deliver to Nehemiah, he was making sure that a lot of people saw that letter in order to try to drum up uh, opposition to Nehemiah to put pressure on him. It's gossip. It's lies. It's rumors. I mean, this, we see that today. The same thing was happening then. And they were, they were being very intentional to try, try to drum this stuff, up, this stuff up against Nehemiah. Now, I think we may have a question of, okay, why are these people so opposed to Nehemiah? Well, I mean, I think on the surface level, they are political adversaries. They're worried that they don't want to see Jerusalem get stronger because when Jerusalem was weak, it doesn't pose a threat. They can do whatever they want to Jerusalem and not receive any pushback. But now that Jerusalem's getting stronger with Nehemiah as the point person, they don't like that too much politically. But I think on a deeper level, we have to recognize that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem are working to build up the kingdom of God. They're working to turn people's hearts back to him and to secure people for God's own purposes. And those, whenever anyone's working for the kingdom of God, there is going to be opposition. And we have to understand that's true for us as Christians today as well, that for Christians, opposition is inevitable. I mean, we saw that with Jesus earlier. He said, okay, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they push back against me, they're going to push back against you as well if you're standing up for me. So opposition is inevitable. So it shouldn't really surprise us when we're trying to follow Christ faithfully and stand up for him and people push back against us. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, there's no ambiguity there. If you want to stand up for Christ, you will be persecuted. People will push back on you. So when we face persecution and push back in our lives, especially when you're standing up for Christ, it shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, really, if you stand up for any cause in this world, you will get criticized. If you try to lead anything in this world, whether it's something in the church, something that's spiritual, or something in your business, or something in, in an organization, or whatever, if you put yourself in any position of leadership, you will get criticized at times. It's the same thing. If you really want to stand firm and follow in Christ, you will get criticized. It's just a reality of life in this fallen, in this broken world. Because we have um, the devil and spiritual forces of darkness that are opposed to God and his people. We have the world that in many ways, by and large, is opposed to God and his people. We have our sinful nature inside of us and inside of everyone around us that's opposed to God and his purposes and therefore his people. So it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we see all over the place many good causes, good things that people are standing up for People still oppose those and criticize those at times. Over this past Christmas, um, 
I was having a conversation with my uncle. My uncle, um, he owns and is the president of a company down in St. Louis called Conley and Associates. And this company uh, works with contracts with the U.S. Department of Defense. They provide um, help in the supply chain. They provide training for military personnel. They provide um, maintenance for military equipment. And their whole goal is to, there with their work, is to make sure that, that these military personnel and these, this equipment is ready to go when it's needed. And this company has been rec- recognized as being a great place to work. Back in 2011, one organization recognized Conley & Associates, my uncle's company, as the best workplace in St. Louis that year. Again, this last year in 2013, a different organization, actually a magazine there in St. Louis uh, for small businesses, recognized them as one of the top workplaces in the city, a five-star workplace. And so they've gained a lot of recognition in the area for being a great place to work because my uncle, he's, he's a Christian. He's tried to instill biblical values in that company. I mean, it's not specifically a Christian company, but they instill values like respect for each other, respect for your clients, um, care for one another. I mean, if we all, if, if, if the company is doing well, we, we want everyone to benefit. I mean, rewards for education, all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's a place that apparently, because of all the recognition it's getting, is a great place to work. And so over Christmas, I was talking with my uncle about this, and I just said, man, that's pretty cool that, um, I mean, your company is one of the top places to work in St. Louis. And he's, the very first thing he said was, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit, but he said, well, I'm sure that not everyone thinks that it's a great place. Not everyone likes me or likes uh, us as a workplace. And so I probed a little bit farther um, and found out he wasn't just speaking facetiously, um, but the reality is that in order to make it a healthy workplace where people like to be, He's had to deal with some very difficult issues, especially when people are gossiping, when they're spreading negativity, when they are being disrespectful to their coworkers or to clients. Those are things that if you want a healthy workplace, you can't just tolerate those and let them slide. You have to be intentional and proactive to address them. And so that's the mentality they've created in that workplace that we're going to be about respect. We're going to be about caring for one another. We're going to be about treating each other as you want to be treated. And if you're unwilling to go along with those values, well, we need to address that. And he's had to let a number of people go through the years who are unwilling to live in a way that builds others up rather than tearing them down. And those people are not at all happy with him or with his company, even though as a whole, there are a lot of people who say this is one of the best workplaces in St. Louis. So it's a good cause. It has good values, but you still have people opposing it. And that's the nature of life in this world, that people will oppose pretty much anything that you do, anything that you try to stand up for, people will oppose it. It's the same when you stand up for God, that that you will have criticism. People will push back on it. And perhaps it's especially the case because as Christians, we do stand up for God. As Christians, we do represent God. And people, oftentimes when they're opposing us, they're not opposing us directly per se, they're opposing what we represent in terms of who God is. Because people don't want to submit to God oftentimes. I think of a, a quote from a New York University professor named Thomas Nagel. Um, he's an atheist. He's a uh, philosophy professor there. Um, I want to read you a quote from him because I think it really captures well why people push back when we stand up for Christ. He says, 
I really value his honesty here. He says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And a little bit later, he talks about this cosmic authority problem that he and many others who are atheists, they have this cosmic authority problem. They don't want to submit to anyone else's authority. They want to be the end-all, be-all in their life who are their final authority, who can do whatever they want with no accountability or not answering to anyone. And I think that is really the root issue for why people push back against us if we want to simply say, I like following Christ. Because they see in that a threat. Because we are submitting ourselves to Christ's authority and they don't want to submit themselves to anyone's authority. So they will push back. That's the reality that we face. We live in a world that is opposed to God and when we stand up for him, they're going to be opposed to us as well. And this shouldn't catch us off guard. So here we see Nehemiah. He, gets, he sees this letter, this, uh, this rumor that's going about. And he, he gives them a very simple and straightforward response. He says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. I, I, I again, like Nehemiah's straightforwardness. He's not throwing fuel on the fire. He's just saying, look, that's not true. I'm going to stay focused on my task at hand here. Now I want to move on to phase three of Operation Intimidation. Phase three begins in verse 10. He says, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So what we see here is now the opponents are not doing a direct intimidation anymore. They're, they're working through Nehemiah's own people in Jerusalem, trying to pull him off course. It's temptation to sin. And this temptation to sin partic particularly comes through an invitation to protect himself. I mean, there's this, this rumor that's being spread through this false prophet that says, you know what, assassins are going to come, they're going to kill you. So you, here's, here's the plan. Go hide in the temple. Close the doors of the temple behind you, and then you will be safe. Nehemiah says, no, I'm not going to do that. He recognizes this an invitation to sin out of, out of, a, out of a mentality of self-preservation because he knows he cannot go in that part of the temple. He is not a priest. Only priests can go in there, and he knows that if he goes in there then this is going to be broadcast to everyone that he's done that which is against the law of Moses. And he's going to get a bad name. He could even be executed for this type of thing. Nehemiah is not going to fall into that trap that they want him to fall into. And we see that this man, who, who, this false prophet, he's specifically been hired by Tobiah and Sanballat. And so Nehemiah says, look, I'm going to trust my life to God. I don't know exactly what's going to happen to me. I'm going to trust that I'm in the middle of God's will and he's going to take care of me and allow what he wants to happen to me. He's not going to go into self-preservation mode. But I think that self-preservation mode is one of those temptations that 
is not blatant. It's not one of those temptations that, that we oftentimes think of in terms of temptations that pull people off course from following Christ. But self-preservation mode is still a temptation that does pull many, many people away from Jesus. Because we get concerned about what others around us think. We worry about, okay, if I'm identified as being a Christian, will I be able to have the job opportunities? What are people saying behind my back? And we go into self-preservation mode, and we try to lay low. We don't want people to know we're a follower of Christ. We don't want to be too outspoken. We don't want to uh, be too active in building up the kingdom of God because we're worried about what people think of us. We want to preserve ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. But that's a sin. And what ends up happening is many people compromise in following Christ because they're worried about what other people think. We have to recognize not everyone's going to like us if we're following Christ. That's just a reality. We have to come to grips with that reality and say, you know what? I'm going to be like Nehemiah and I'm going to push forward even if people are pushing back against me. I, I love Nehemiah's heart here. He is very, very clear throughout this passage on what God is calling him to do and to be. There's no wavering. I mean, there's pressure, there's opposition, there are threats. But over and over, he just says, look, I have a great task that God's called me to here. What you're saying is not ultimately true. I'm going to keep pressing forward. He has a clear goal in his mind that allows him to, to keep pressing forward even when distractions and opposition come. And we need to do the exact same thing. That, that we may not be building a wall, but we need to ask God, what is your will for me? You may be wondering, okay, I have no idea what God's will is for me. Well, there are parts of God's will that are unique to each one of us, but there are parts of God's will that are crystal clear and apply to every single one of us. So one of those parts is that God calls every single one of us to follow Christ wholeheartedly. That's non-negotiable. God also calls us all to be building up his kingdom. There are different ways to do that, but those are non-negotiables that, that we just need to come to grips with and, and keep our focus on that, on following Christ and building up his kingdom. Following Christ, build up his kingdom. Those are the, the fo focuses and the goals that we need to have because otherwise, when distractions come along, when there is pressure and pushback, we're going to waver we don't have those clear goals in front of us. I think of when I go into Aldi or Subway or gas stations with my children. We have to have a crystal clear game plan before we go in there. And I pick out those three places specifically because I've had trouble in all those places with chips. You see, we go, we go in the Subway to get a sandwich. I'm, I'm going there just to get a sandwich. I'm taking the kids with me. This is the first place I experienced it. Micaiah, I'm sure you remember this. Um, and you kind of shrug your shoulders, but you have a good memory. We go in there. I didn't even think about how there are these big rows of chips there. We have a big meltdown right there because he wants chips. And anyway, so now what we do before we go in the subway, Aldi has very uh, strategically right there by the entryway, chips on one side, sweets on the other side to entice you right when you go in. Gas stations, very similar. We always have to have a talk in the car before we go into any of these places about what our purpose is there. We need to make sure that we're very clear in what we're doing. We need to make sure it's clear what we are not doing. We are not getting chips. Because if we don't have that crystal clear in our minds before we go in there, it's going to be a battle. And no matter what ends up happening out of that battle, it's not going to be pretty. And it's going to feel like no one really wins in the end. And so we need to come up with a crystal clear plan, clarify what is our goal here. And by clarifying that and by, by aligning ourselves around that, we're able to get in and out 
without getting too distracted by those things. And it's the same thing for us in our lives, that we need to have that crystal clear plan, knowing this is where I'm going, this is what God's calling me to. And that way, when temptations come and when pressure comes, we can say, no, God's called me here. Now, I want to turn back now to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I read earlier, uh, where it says, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus wins in the end. You know what? It's very easy to criticize. It's easy to gossip. These things are very common in our world. We have to recognize that those aren't signs of strength. Those are signs of weakness and insecurity. It takes tremendous strength to stand up for God. It's strength that we don't have in and of ourselves. That's why we need the Holy Spirit's help. That's why Nehemiah prayed in, in verse 9 of our chapter that we were just looking at. He said, Lord, strengthen my hands. We need God's strength to help carry us through. But we can take heart in knowing that Jesus wins. Jesus has overcome the world. He is the victory. He is the champion. And even though we might be going through a hard stretch right now, it might feel like the valley of the shadow of death, we can have the confidence that if we are aligned with him, that we too will be on the champion's team. I don't know about you, but no matter what I'm going through in this life, no matter what hardships we face, I take comfort in the fact that if I'm with Jesus, I win because he wins. I'd rather be on the winning team, even though it might be hard now, than be on a team that's not the winning team, even though it might be easier right now. And if God is for us, and if we are for God, who ultimately can stand against us? No one. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have confidence, or we can have confidence in you, that you win in the end. And I pray that you will help us to really live out that confidence and that faith, Lord. And enable us, Lord, to see clearly who you're calling us to be and what you're calling us to do so that when we face challenges and trials and hardships and persecution in this world, that we will be able to stand firm. Let us have the heart of Nehemiah. Let us have the heart of Christ, Lord, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, that he endured the shame, that he endured the hardship for the greater prize that was laid out before him. May we have that same heart, Lord, and take courage in the fact that you win in the end. And when we are aligned with you, we get to share in that victory. Thank you, Lord. Amen.